Hey, everybody. Today is a re-release of show number 405 from December 31st, 2020. It now includes new material from hearing about a new book release and the original Extra 5, which has been added to the end for your enjoyment. Welcome to Before the Lights podcast. I'm Tommy Canale, the show that tells you how they made their mark. He's a former undercover New Jersey State Trooper, was a professional NBA referee who officiated seven NBA finals. The author of Covert, My Years Infiltrating the Mob, Surviving the Shadows, Our Journey of Hope into Post-Traumatic Stress, and soon to be released, Heroes Are Human, Lessons in Resilience, Courage, and Wisdom from the COVID Front Lines. The recipient of numerous awards that includes President Obama awarded him the President Volunteer Service Award, and he's twice honored with the Meritorious Public Service Medal by the Army. He's been featured on ESPN, CNN, and HBO Real Sports while serving on the TAPS Advisory Board. Please welcome to the show, Bob Delaney. Thanks. Good to be with you. I'm excited to have you on. And first, before we go, I just want to say thank you for your service and thank you for everything you've done over the course of your of your lifetime. It's my honor. Who was Bob Delaney as a child? Um, so I, I was very fortunate. I was truly raised by a village. Um, the first leaders in my life sat across the dining room table, my mom and dad. And um, I, as I said, I was truly raised by a village. My grandparents, aunts and uncles, um, people in the neighborhood, uh, everyone had an influence on my life. And, you know, as you grow up as a kid, you think everybody lives that kind of life. And um, then you become more aware as you get older that how special it was. And my cousins and I still to this day talk about how fortunate we were to have that kind of foundational family setting that uh, gave us roots and, and taught us truly servant leadership. What kind of athlete were you and what all sports did you participate in? Yeah, I, I played basketball and baseball, uh, played a little bit of soccer, but it wasn't something that was uh, for me. I, I ran some across country and track because I think in that era, I'm 69 years old. In that era, everybody played every sport or at least tried every sport. We didn't become a sport specific. And um, it, it, I tell folks, I was all state in basketball and baseball in, in, in high school. I don't know that I could make a team today, to be honest with you. <laughs> the athleticism of uh, those today playing sports is phenomenal. Uh, I played at a Division three school, New Jersey City University, and um, became very uh, realistic about my abilities about midway through my college career and knew that the league, the NBA wouldn't be calling me. So in wanting to stay with the sport, and because I saw what the sport did for me, but what it did for everyone else as well, it taught us teamwork, it taught us dedication, commitment, all of those kinds of um, life skills that show up in every walk of life. That's what's so the beauty of sports. It, it, there's so many things that you learn from it that bring you uh, the opportunity for success in other areas of your life. Agree. I'm a former athletic director and a junior college basketball coach myself. So Sports can do a whole lot for people in their lives, just as you said. In 1972, you took the New Jersey Trooper Entry Exam. What led you to or wanted you to become part of law enforcement? That, that's a, um, a, a 
my dad was was a New Jersey state trooper. And I had grown up in that environment. You know, I, I was around it. I had uh, cousins and uncles who were cops as well. And um, it really didn't hit me till I was in, in college. It was not something I wanted to be. What I thought I would be as a kid was like a history teacher and a basketball coach. And I thought that would be like my life's journey. And um, it wasn't until about my sophomore year that for some reason, I had this feeling like I should go into the state police. I mean, it was something that was calling me. And as they noted, I, I took the test. I left college early in my, my senior year because the New Jersey State Police had not given a test for uh, close to three years, about two, two and a half years. And my concern was if I waited to graduate, then they may not have another test for a couple of years and, and, and I would miss my spot. And so I told the NBA players later in life that I came out early too, um, I, not just them, but I came out early to become a cop, not to go into the NBA out of college. We're going to talk a little bit about covert your years infiltrating the mob. We're going to talk about your other book with PTSD and we'll talk about being an NBA referee, but starting with covert, Bob, how were you chosen amongst all the New Jersey troopers to be the one that they felt could go undercover? Yeah, that, that, um, so the process that happened, I was about a year on the job and it was a great job back then. You, you, you work two days on and two days off. We were local cops for towns that didn't have their own police department, as well as doing the miles and smiles on the highway, giving out tickets and handling the accidents on the interstates. But in certain areas of the state of New Jersey, they did not have their own local police department. So we served that purpose. So uh, when I became a state trooper, while most people think of that as a highway patrolman, I was doing breaking entries into homes as investigator, as an investigator in uniform, peeping toms, I mean, up to murders. I mean, it was the whole full gamut. And I was stationed, um, we would work two days on, two days off. And every police station was the same. You'd walk in, it would look like a police station, but upstairs you had uh, bedrooms where two troopers to every room. And downstairs was our ping pong table, uh, family room, kitchen. Uh, it was like, it was our house, like a firehouse. And I went from Flemington to Newton, Newton to Somerville, about a year on the job. And I walked in after two days off and they try to make you feel good about yourself in a squad room, right? They have these little cubby holes with your name on it as if you had your own office. <laughs> and I uh, had a note that said, call Lieutenant Jack Liddy, Division Headquarters, Criminal Investigation Section, Organized Crime Bureau. And this guy had more titles next to his name than I ever saw before. And it wasn't common for a general road duty trooper to get a call from Division Headquarters. And, and Tom, I grew up Irish Catholic, so that means I wake up guilty in the morning. I thought I did something wrong. <laughs> I thought I had a problem on my hands. And the other trooper said, relax, kid, give the guy a call. He probably gave a ticket to a mob guy, and he wants to talk to you. I called him. Lieutenant spoke to me for a while and he, 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 he contacted me and he said, you're going to be in for a while. I said, yes, sir. He said, I'll meet you in the kitchen about an hour and a half. Hour and a half later, I walk in. There's this intimidating figure. Lieutenant Liddy stands about six foot four, got meat hooks for hands. He's the kind of guy that hangs on his lapels when he talks to you. And after a period of conversation, he said to me, are you interested in doing undercover work? I said, yes, sir. And he turned and walked away. I said, Lieutenant, what is it? Drugs? Narcotics, because back then all we were doing is buy bust on the street. He said, you keep asking the questions, you're going to be out of the running. Over the next three weeks, I learned that the President's Organized Crime Task Force, the FBI, and New Jersey State Police were joining forces. 
and we're going to start our own trucking company on the waterfront. I became one of those undercover guys. It was myself, another state trooper, and three FBI agents um, as we started that. Um, and we were told it was for six months, right? Every right. federal grant is written for six months. Uh, like we were going to end organized crime in the state of New Jersey in six months, I guess, and moved <laughs> on to the next thing. And quite honestly, Tom, I was being selfish because I'm thinking this would be pretty cool to do for six months. And, um, you know, I'll probably get a detective badge out of this thing. You know, all those wheels were rolling in my head. Um, but then as the story goes on, it got a little bit more involved. I want to make sure I'm going to put a link in the show notes, everybody, that you actually go out and check out the book Covert, My Years Infiltrating the Mob. you got to read this. It's, it's a great read. Bob, being undercover and not being able to tell anyone, how was that? How did it affect you and your family? Yeah. When going deep cover is different than working undercover. There's a variety of different undercover uh, styles. So um, many times police officers go undercover, but they still go home at night and they still have their normal, or it's a buy bust. You work with an informant, you go in, you, you make the buy and then they, other cops are outside and they bust them right away. This was deep cover. I was made to look as though I was thrown out of the state police that I resigned. And um, like the guys that I worked with, uh, no different than most. Uh, they never let the truth get in the way of a good story. So everybody was making up stuff. I got jammed up. My old man's on a job. They're taking <laughs> care of the kid. That There was all kinds of stories going on. But we wanted to push me away. And then um, we created a whole new identity for me, Bobby Covert, Robert Allen Covert. His mother was Carol Stevens. His father was Elmer Covert. He was born uh, in November of uh, 1949, I was born November 1951, same first name, same ethnic sounding last name. And then the FBI gave you social security cards. We got uh, all kinds of identifiers. You create a new persona. And um, that that was the start of, of Bobby Covert and in, in, in becoming that undercover guy. And the reason I wanted to early on bring up your athletic background, because this is one of the questions I have is, did being in sports teach you anything that you might've been able to use while you're undercover. Yes, absolutely. Great, great point. And um, I, I got to tell you, no one's ever really gone down that path with me with all the interviews that have taken place. Um, they've talked about my sports background as a referee, but what I learned about, you never give up. Uh, I learned about how to handle uh, pressure situations uh, whether you're taking that free throw at the end of a game, it doesn't matter where that free throw, it doesn't have to be the NBA finals. It can be your high school game mm-hmm. on a Friday night. That's a level of pressure of understanding how to control yourself in order to get your breathing right and be able to take that shot. Those kinds of things, no doubt in my mind showed up in, in that undercover work. And um, I, I, I think that it goes back to what we said earlier it's all those life skills that you learn through sports that show up in other ways in your life. How did Bobby Covert, Project Alpha, which was the name of the operation, how did you earn the trust of these mafia guys? Yeah, um, you know, early on it was, we had a small trucking company called Mid-Atlantic Air Sea Transportation. It was at 941 Fairmont Avenue uh, in Elizabeth, New Jersey, at the entrance to the Port of Newark. In, 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 um, along the waterways in, in New Jersey. And we didn't know what we were doing, to be honest with you. I, I mean, it was, it was five guys, three FBI agents, two state troopers, 
the only thing I knew about undercover work was you became an armpit with eyes, right? I mean, you grow your hair long, you got hair all over the place, and beards and everything else because you don't want to look like a cop. And then you become more realistic. We got lucky in the investigation. We were going to be a, we were getting to a certain level, but we weren't getting anywhere near where we had targeted and hoped to be within, you know, traditional organized crime, the mafia, La Cosa Nostra, whatever name you want to give to it. A guy by the name of Patrick John Kelly was jammed up. He was a concierge for the Denorgio crew of the Bruno crime family. He had a choice. The FBI had cases on him, state police had cases on him, go to jail to come to work for us. He chose to work for us. And he actually scolded us in a way to wise guy because we were being politically correct. We were five co-owners in the trucking company. And the first thing he sat down with us and said, I don't know what you guys are doing. I never saw a bus going down the street with five bus drivers. Somebody's got to be in charge here. Um, so he helped us understand how to mimic and be like a crew. And so I became the president of a new trucking company that we started called Alamo Transportation that we uh, had at 231 Communipal Avenue, Jersey City, New Jersey, in the shadows of the Statue of Liberty, which is now Liberty State Park. And um, Pat, the informant, became the vice president. Uh, The other trooper became like a driver, bodyguard kind of guy that uh, was always handling the knockaround guys with the truck drivers and all. Uh, but always a reason for him to be around for added protection and added ears and eyes. And then the FBI guys uh, took on the role of truck operation, truck manager. We actually had like dozens of trucks running for us at one point. And um, we became the house trucker for uh, Frigid Freight, which was a Genovese controlled uh, company. Uh, we had all kinds of inlines into the uh, container work on the uh, Port of Newark. And people knew that Alamo Transportation, we were told by the wise guys, um, nobody's going to bother your trucks, meaning they're not going to get hijacked because everybody knew you don't touch these trucks. And our trucks were getting loaded so much quicker when they got somewhere because of the control with the unions. And so for all that, we got to kick back 25% of our profits. <laughs> and so it was, uh, we had new, new, two new uh, partners, the Genovese and Bruno crime families. And then once that happened, then the romance began where they wanted to separate, right? Because I looked like I was the golden goose. They made me look like I had all this money. And then one group wanted to take me away from the other. They didn't like splitting that 25%. By the nature of the beast, that greed took over. And um, the dollars is what really helped us lock them, lock them up because they became so greedy. Were you in constant fear being an undercover then? Yes. Yeah. I lived in constant fear. And um, it, it was, it was, if I was not wearing an on-body recorder, which was like a Niagara back then, we mm-hmm. thought we were like 007 com- and compared to what they have today. It was a, um, a small reel-to-reel recorder because if you recall and you see old time movies, it used to be like a van sitting outside and you would have a transmitter on as an undercover. Well, if, if I kept showing up and that van keeps showing up, they're going to put two plus two together. Sure. So, um, and also they had become more sophisticated with equipment that could read whether or not that transmissions were coming from your body. So we went to the reel to reel and I would wear it in a cup, uh, I mean a jock where you would normally put the cup. And then I had on off switches into my pockets and, and uh, microphones up under my ar- armpits. And I usually would wear a vest or some kind of additional kind of clothing, um, with a sport jacket in order to be able to help hide that. But I did 
we did over 300 recordings that way, but we also had our trucking company wired. And, I, and I'll just give you this one thing for how sophisticated it was for the 70s and how talented the electronic surveillance people were of the New Jersey State Police and the FBI. They came into, my, uh, into the trucking company, tore the walls down one night, put all the equipment up, and in each corner of the office, they ajarred the molding so that there was a camera eye. There were no cell phones back then. So I could go to a phone booth, a telephone booth, dial a number, and then it would come on and say, the number you have called is a non-working number. Please hang up and call again. I would work, wait 20 seconds and put in a code. That would activate the equipment. Didn't have to have it on me. And then they had a briefcase that I carried that they wired. So it took the equipment off me because the more I became ingratiated and became part of the part of them, the concern was if they found this wire in, in that world, informants die. If I would have been found with the, the wire on, you're going to get whacked. I mean, it's just the way of the life. Speaking of that, was there an instance or a number of times where you thought they found out who I am and my cover's blown and this could be it? Yeah. Uh, early on, you th- you've said this to other cops and have heard the same thing. At first, you think you've got cop written on your forehead. You think everybody knows what you're doing and you, you, you're paranoid that uh, you're not getting anywhere. And then you get to the point that you become comfortable. And that's the scary part, because when you become too comfortable and the way I relate it to sports, Tommy, you know how you feel when you're in that locker room. There's not a player or referee that can't wait to get out of a locker room Mm-mm. because you start to feel that juice running through your body as it gets closer and closer to game time. And it, you got you want to get out and go. It's the same thing in working undercover. You want to go. It's like it, it. But when you lose that juice or you lose that kind of nervous edge, you're not as sharp. And there were times I was losing that nervous edge. And I was becoming more comfortable with the bad guys than I was with the good guys. And that's the dangerous part. What's the stress of that job, Bob, being undercover then for three years? Yeah, I, I think it's, uh, it, it's um, I, I do a lot of work with the military today in, in helping them uh, understand the emotions and the psychological, emotional and mind health uh, and the physical responses that we have to stressors. Um, easiest way to explain it is probably like being on deployment. You know, if you're deployed to Iraq or Afghanistan, you know you're going for a period of time. But then when there's multiple deployments, I had multiple deployments back to back to back because it was close to three years of my life that I became another person. You lose, and, and there's kind of an identity that takes place with what's going on now. I really didn't have social connections other than with the people I was working on the cover with because my family connections were gone. And so my friend connections were gone and we all know how we feel now. We yearn for that time to be able to hang out with our friends or our family members. And yet we can't do it because of COVID. I couldn't do it because of the undercover work. And so that isolation and while I was going to big time dinners and I was hanging out and, and, you know, I put on like 40 pounds when I was undercover, you know, the lifestyle. It's different when you're doing all those kinds of things with people you don't want to be around. And that's the kind of stressor that goes on. Plus the fact that in the back of your mind, you know, that they're, they're capable of putting a bullet in your head. 
It led to the arrest of over 30 mobsters, which was mainly the Bruno and Genovese crime families. And when it was all done, there was a threat put out onto your life. Talk about hearing that for the first time that you just put in three years of your life to take the bad guys off the street. And now all of a sudden there's a threat on you. Yeah. I thought it was going to be the greatest day of my life when this was finally over. I, I had gotten to the point that, um, you know, and, and these were things I was afraid to say, but, um, you know, I, I was good at doing undercover work. We're all good at doing something in life and I could meet with the wise guys and I'd have the wire on when I left there and I get five miles down the street, I stop and throw, get, throw up, uh, pull over on the side of the road or have to find the first gas station I could find because I had diarrhea. I'd wake up in the middle of the night. My bed was soaking wet. I never told anybody those things. I had palpitations of the heart. Um, it, it, the stress that was taking place was not manageable, but yet I was afraid to say anything because I didn't want to look weak. And, uh, you know, in, that kind of stressor as you carry it and as you go on um, becomes more and more intense. And I thought as soon as I got away from this, everything's going to be fine. And so the day that we arrest everybody, I come to realize this is going to be even more difficult because that day I was assigned to be with Sergeant Barry Lardier at the command post. And he said to me um, at one point when they started bringing the defendants in, do you want to see what's going on downstairs, me in the processing? And I said yes when I meant no. I'm in civilian clothes. I got nothing on that says I'm a state trooper. He's got his civilian clothes on, but he's got the state police detective on the outside. And there are uniformed troopers there. There's FBI agents. And the fingerprinting's taking place, the picture, shooting them if the room, see who's going to be the next uh, informant. Everybody's uh, you know, going to figure out what kind of deal they want to cut for themselves. And I put myself at parade rest. I went back to that military training from the State Police Academy. And as I'm standing next to uh, Sergeant Lardier, a guy by the name of Ronnie Sardella was being fingerprinted. And uh, the trooper started putting the cuffs back on him. He looked over. He said to me, Bobby, what'd they pinch you for? And before I could answer, Sergeant Lardier said, he's not pinched. He's with us. Uh, he's a trooper. And the look that went between Ronnie and I was one of hurt and disappointment by him. This is a guy that I knew as a friend, for lack of a better term. I stole tractor trailers with him. I, I did dope deals with him. I did gun deals with him. I, did him at all. I knew his wife. I knew his kids. Um, that kind of feeling, it, it, you know, was difficult to be able to, because I felt guilty. It's an unwritten rule on a schoolyard. You don't tell on your friends. Mm -hmm. And then we're asked to tell, become friends with people and telling them. I also knew that if somebody had done to me what I had done to them, I would be pissed off. It would bother me. And so those, those feelings inside of me, yet I couldn't verbalize any of this to another state trooper or FBI agent. They would think I went bad. So I was in this middle zone of on an island and I felt very uncomfortable. And it, it compounded about six days after that raid. I was called to Major Bill Baum's office, uh, the head of all criminal investigation for the state of New Jersey at the time. And he was in charge of this one. And he played a wire, he played a recording of a wiretap at a social club in Hoboken, New Jersey, where they were talking about whacking me. And then um, he also had intelligence information from detectives, uh, from informants, that there was talk of whacking me. And I tried to be cool and say, it doesn't make for a good day, boss. And he was an empathetic leader. And he sat me down, uh, said, 
I want you to understand we're going to get this where we want it to be, but until then you're going to have security. And I had troopers living with me. They were inside my home where I went. And one happened to be John Schroth, a detective who had a background in psychology from Rutgers University. And for something I wanted to get away from so bad, after a couple of weeks, I still had to go out and testify. I had to go out in surveillances. And I started putting the leather jacket on again. And I got the pinky rings and I got the chains around the neck. I'm going through this whole routine again. And I'm going in to testify in grand juries. And the prosecutors are like, what are you doing? You look more like them than them. I mean, we can't put you up there. And so John confronted me. He said, I don't know what's going on with you, pal. He said, but uh, you're going backwards instead of frontwards. And we stopped off with that surveillance team one night for a drink. And I started buying everybody drinks because that's what Bobby Covert did. I mean, that's what was, that was my style. And he looked at me and he says, hey, pal, that's not Fed money anymore. That's mortgage money. You're hurting yourself. What are you doing? What do you do when somebody starts confronting you? You go the other way. I don't need this guy. He don't know what I'm talking about. Over a period of time, uh, different people tried to help me. Dr. Henry Campbell happened to be in a um, presentation I was getting because everybody wanted to hear this story. And I testified before the United States Senate. I was gave a briefing to Congress. Um, I was speaking all over about the nuts and bolts of this thing. And Hank and I started doing some informal therapy. And he said to me, Bobby, what you're going through is post-traumatic stress. And I pushed him away. And then Louis Free, who is the 15th director of the FBI, happened to be a street agent and was working my case and another guy over in New York. And he introduced me to another undercover who had surfaced. His name was Joe Pistone. Everybody knows him as Donnie Brasco. And when I looked in Joe's eyes and I read his body language and I heard his words, I knew he got what I was going through. And it led me to understanding about peer-to-peer conversations, peer-to-peer therapy, I used to call it. But I try to use the least amount of medical-sounding terms when I talk about post-traumatic stress because I think we have over-medicalized this subject in our society. We scare people away from the subject. I'm not saying we don't need the medical side of the house. We do. But we have to figure out a way to build a stronger bridge between those that need it and the resources that are there because people feel as if it's mental illness. It's not, it's a human condition. After the civil war, we called it soldier's heart. After world war one, we called it shell shock. After world war two, we called it battle fatigue. After Korea and Vietnam, we called it flashbacks. It's been around forever. It's a human condition. With all those people, Bob, that were telling you, Hey, there's something going on here. And Dr. Henry Campbell, did you still think you had PTSD or were you just, Brushing it off going, no, nah, I'm fine. Yeah, I was pushing it away. I, I didn't want to hear reality. Um, and also, post-traumatic stress was not as known about then. And so uh, I was trying to navigate all the paranoia that I had. Everybody's telling me I'm a tough guy because I infiltrated the mob and they're giving me awards and they're doing. But they didn't see me in my house at 2 o'clock in the morning pushing shower curtains back with my gun out, afraid they're coming to get me. They didn't see me isolating and, and drawing away from people. The hypervigilance that I had, uh, all telltale signs of um, post-traumatic stress that I know now because I became a student of it once I started to realize and accept it what I was going through. Can people then be affected by PTSD indirectly? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Your family members, friends, they get hit with emotional shrapnel. And um, so what I was able to do is take this experience. And Tom, I, I, 
I, I really believe this. There are two great days in your life. The day you're born and the day you figure out why you were born. And for me, uh, I look back at this undercover job and people used to ask me, would you do it again? And I would say no. And uh, that was early days. Now, if you ask me that question, yes. Because I know that it was not only about putting away mob guys. There was over 100 people arrested in this investigation over a period of time as a result of the spinoff investigations. But I've come to realize that I had to go through that experience. And part of it was about putting bad guys away. But the larger part was to be able to be in a position in life to help a lot of good people understand the experiences they're going through serving us as cops, firefighters, every branch of the military. Um, and now those on the pandemic front line, they're the ones that are going to be suffering with these kinds of traumas that they're experiencing as well. Bob has provided training the past 30 years in federal, state, county, and local law enforcement officers and agents in the United States, Canada, and Europe to help them understand and identify symptoms of PTSD. Bob, if you would tell our listeners, what are some of the symptoms of PTSD? Well, first, they have to have the trauma experience, right? So the trauma experience we identify many times as the, uh, I just explained with the Civil War, World War I, World War II, we refer to them for almost like it's a military kind of experience. But trauma can come in so many different ways. Trauma can come as a result of an earthquake. Uh, a house fire, uh, a car accident is the most common cause of post-traumatic stress. And if for anyone that's ever been in one, you know, the next time you get in that car, there's this awkwardness and this, this hypervigilance that you're making sure you're overcompensating for the way you drive than you normally would. So traumatic events come in our lives. I, I, I recently, um, in 2019 into 2020, uh, completed a course with Harvard's Global uh, Mental Health Trauma and Recovery Program. And Dr. Malika, who is the director, says trauma is inescapable in life. And it's such a true, true statement because it is inescapable. Plus the fact, Tommy, that I'll probably drop that a couple more times while we're speaking, Harvard in my name, because my fifth grade teacher never had those words on, the, on, on her lips at, at any time <laughs> when she was talking about me. But um, the amazing learning that I had from that faculty, as well as the cohort members who are working in the area of sex trafficking, refugees, um, all those kinds of things that create traumas in our, in our lives. You, you could imagine the, the, the children of domestic violence, uh, domestic abuse, what traumas they're living with. Um, those of the recent uh, scandals of the Boy Scouts of the Catholic Church, that's traumas that are going on in people's lives. Now, you take and have one trauma. For example, I'm going to even go back up. Um, not only do I work with the military firefighters and um, uh, law enforcement officers, which I've been doing for the last four decades, it's spilling over into sports. So um, after I retired from the NBA, I, I refereed for 25 years. Five years I was in management as vice president, referee operation, director of officials. And then I retired, and, and Greg Sankey, the commissioner of uh, the SEC, created a position for me. And, and it's, it's the special advisor for officiating development performance. And shortly after I'd taken the position, he called me and said it, that he had not hired me for this, but uh, he knows the work that I do. And we just had a basketball player shot at LSU. 
And if you remember, Wade Sims was shot there a couple of years ago. And um, it was a, a sad, sad uh, situation. The team had gone on one of those bonding kind of things the night before practice was to start to begin the season. And they went to a concert. Some of the guys left a little early, went across the street to get something to eat. A couple of them hung around. As they were coming out, there was a fight breaking out. Wade, uh, being the kind of kid he was, wanted to break it up because he knew some of the people. Another kid came up behind him and shot him in the head. And so his teammates saw that. Um, so we w- went down, uh, Greg Sankey, Dan Leibovitz, uh, her, Vincent, all the people from the SEC, attended the funeral. And then over a six-week period, I spent a, a couple days each week with that team, helping them process it. And what you come to find is that when someone goes through a traumatic event, almost like a scab on a wound that has developed, it knocks that scab off and old traumas start to come back because you start thinking about those. We had two of the players that had had friends or family members that had been shot and killed. So those were unresolved processings that took place. Not all wounds bleed. And invisible bleed, wounds bleed, uh, invisible wounds cut as deep as visible wounds at times. And so healing needs to take place. And it's not just time. And closure is a word that is only for people that are not going through it. Uh, there is no closure for someone that's lost their child. There is no closure for someone that's lost a spouse. It's helping them process it and, and come to an understanding of love lives on and life lives on as well. I want to share with you how the book Heroes Are Human, Lessons in Resilience, Courage and Wisdom from the COVID Front Lines came to be. I would drive by hospitals as the COVID-19 pandemic took place and see signs that read, Heroes Work Here. I've lived a life where people referred to me as a hero. I work with those in the military, law enforcement, first responders who are given that title of hero. And I know anyone that gets it does not think they are. And so it drove me to become more aware of what our nurses, doctors, healthcare workers were experiencing as a result of COVID. And the more research I did, the more I found that the similarities between the work that I do with the military, those who are on battlefields in Iraq and Afghanistan or on foreign soil are internally feeling some of the same emotions as those who are on the front lines of the COVID-19 fight. So the interviews of doctors, nurses, healthcare workers took place in an attempt to get a better understanding, not only for all of us, but for them as well. Because I know that not all wounds bleed. And the wounds that we do not see, invisible wounds, may hurt as much as the wounds we do see. So my hope was to be able to bring and shine a light on this subject, the subject of post-traumatic stress, and how trauma impacts all of us, even those on the COVID front lines. And I'm proud to share with you that Heroes Are Human will be available in pre-sales April 12th, and the book release will be in September. 
Listeners, go to the show notes for a link to purchase Heroes Are Human, Lessons in Resilience, Courage, and Wisdom from the COVID Frontlines. We're going to go into talking a little bit about your referee days, but before we get into how you got into refereeing, I want to kind of fast forward, revert back, however you want to call it. You're officiating NBA games in huge arenas. Was there ever any thought or worry about there was a threat on you and you're in these arenas and maybe somebody's there to take you out? Yeah. Um, so the, the time frame. many times people feel like, um, I did the undercover work. Then I went into the NBA, um, refereeing actually became my therapy. And so, um, when I got to the point that, you know, we didn't have troopers living in my house and we moved beyond that. And we came to an understanding that there was a level of safety. Um, the way I described it is that we all know, for those of us that are old enough, all know where we were on 9-11 because that's a traumatic event. And traumatic events never really leave your mind. Um, and it's seared into you where you were, what was going on, what you smelled, all those kinds of senses come back. I, I tell folks that um, that happened to me in 1978. Um for those that were around during 2001, you remember we had a color code about how security levels were. Well, my, my, in 1978, my security levels went to orange. And so I had a, a, an understanding of who was around me, safety, security, all those kinds of things. The state police and FBI still to this day give me information so that we have an, a, a knowledge of uh, where some of the people that I put away are. And, and, and if there's any potential risks, but um, those kinds of experiences um, are, are, are hard to really process. But what I knew was basketball was always good to me as a kid. It was always there. You know, if things were not fun, uh, times were tough going out to the court and shooting and, and hanging out on a court or playing one-on-one with somebody that you didn't even know or two-on-two with two guys that you never met before, um, gave me a good feeling. So I wanted to get back on a court because I was on a street that had no rules and no boundaries, but the game of basketball has rules and boundaries. And so it it took care of my hypervigilance. I had to run around and make calls and and do all that kind of stuff, the endorphins. All the things that I didn't know about then uh, were being placated, were, were helping me be able to process what I was going through. And one thing led to another. I started refereeing uh, high school ball. Then I moved up to the summer pro leagues and worked over in New York in the summer city pro leagues and down the Jersey shore. And Daryl Garrettson, who was the director of officials, happened to see me and asked if I would be interested in the NBA. And while I was still a trooper, I was working in the Continental Basketball Association, which was the forerunner to the G and D leagues. Um, And then I got hired in. And um, I said to folks, when you're going through tough times, Find your passion, whatever that passion is. For some of it, some folks, maybe photography or quilting or running or biking. For me, it was basketball. And it opened a door to a whole nother career. Talk about getting the call and understanding that you've just been hired to be an NBA referee. Yeah, I, 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 I never forget where I was. I was, I was a station at the academy at the time as a trooper. And I was working in the criminal science unit. I was doing... Um, a program called the Institute on Organized Criminal Groups that I coordinated and had become world known. I mean, we had people coming from Ireland and Italy attending the course. And um, 
I had been working NBA games. I mean, excuse me, CBA games. And Rod Thorne was the president of the NBA at the time. And I got a call at my office and um, Rod told me that they had made a decision to hire me full time if I was willing to come on board. And uh, it was, you know, my biggest concern. Well, my mother's biggest concern was, you know, that old school mentality. You're going to give up that state police pension. I mean, what are you, <laughs> what are you doing? You, know, you don't know what's going to happen with this other job. And so um, I took an early retirement and, and I vested my pension. So I'm officially a retired New Jersey state trooper when I hit age 55. But at age 34, I went into the National Basketball Association and started that career. You are uniform number 26. Was there any significance in that number? Or it was just randomly picked. What a, what a great question. And, and, and I'm telling you, no one has ever asked me that question, but there is. There's a, a tremendous significance. At the State Police Academy in Seagirt, New Jersey, the main training building is building 26. And um, every trooper knows that, that, that building. That's the building where you're going through all the academics and uh, you're going there at night uh, for study hall. And it, it signified to me that all I learned there, I learned about loyalty. I learned about commitment. I learned about dedication. All the things that I learned while there, when I was given the opportunity to wear 26, it reminded me of my roots. It reminded me of uh, how when I went through there, that moral compass that I learned from my parents and my family that was reaffirmed um, to me when I was a trooper. And, and, and I know where we are today with uh, social uh, justice and, and concerns about police work. I had a senior trooper, Bobby Scott, who drilled into my head that just because you have a uniform and a badge doesn't mean you get to be demeaning or disrespectful. And he said, you will truly know when you are a professional law enforcement officer, a professional Jersey trooper. He said, when, when you arrest someone or give them a ticket and they say thank you, you know that you're a true pro. Because they're not saying thank you for what you did. They're saying thank you for how you did it. You did it in a respectful manner. And I carry that into my refereeing. Uh, and I share that with other officials as well. Just because you have that whistle and that uniform doesn't mean you get to be disrespectful or demeaning. You can That's do great. your job in a way that allows their athleticism to be shown by the players. And yet your job is to control and calm things down, not throw fuel on the fire and cause for this yelling and screaming and getting all out of you know, Stay under control and be the one that leads. And so all of those things I remember from number 26, uh, building 26. And I tried to, every night I put that uniform on, it would remind me of all that. That's awesome. If you would, Bob, talk about the demands of being an NBA referee. I mean, you guys are flying all over the country, different arenas, multiple times a week, different time zones. I mean, how are the demands on that job? Yeah, it, it's physically demanding, but I, I, I would offer to people that none of us really... Um, would ask anyone to feel sorry for us. I mean, we're staying in the Marriott's and we're staying in Hilton's. It's not like uh, <laughs> the men and women who serve us that are over in Iraq and Afghanistan living in huts. Uh, so it, it, it is a demanding um, responsibility. There are no home games for referees. And um, so 
it does take a toll on you. You have to become self-disciplined. And I would tell you, one of the most self-disciplined guys I've ever been around is Danny Crawford. And if you remember Danny, Danny was one of the all-time great NBA referees. But his routines and his discipline uh, were something to be admired and also copied. And um, the old timers like you, Evans, took me under his wing. And he taught me so many things about how to be able to exist uh, on, on, on the road. Wally Rooney as well. Uh, I'll go back to Hubert. Hubert always taught me three to four times a week, you got to go over to the um, uh, pharmacy, pick up uh, to the drugstore, pick up some Epsom salts and, and soak in a hot bathtub for at least uh, 30 minutes or so to make sure that your muscles are getting massage therapists, make sure that you're getting that. This is, these were not things that were norm back then, right? But these guys were doing it ahead of time. Wally Rooney always had a, a comment, the boys in the pub don't make the club. We live in hotels. If you let that um, uh, bar become the place that you want to hang out, you're going to have a problem. Uh, other people go to hotels for fun times and vacations. You're going there, that's your office. And you're going to work. And so understanding all of those kinds of things. And like you said, traveling on planes, it kills your back, uh, you know, because you're, you're sitting in that position for so long. So understanding that you had to do more than just running up and down the floor, that was not about your fitness. That was your job. Your fitness was at least another 45 minutes to an hour a day, making sure that you were doing things of either running, stretching, all those kinds of things. There's a question, and this was may be somewhat surprising it's the best thing that I enjoyed reading in covert. And I would like for you to tell my listeners this. And again, you got to get this book, how the NBA and yourself made an impact on the firefighters and the policemen during nine 11. Yeah. Because of my background and, and because of the contacts I had and, and the time frame of, of, of nine 11, many of those that I came into law enforcement with, my, my classmates were in high positions within the state police. The New York City Police Department, I had a lot of contacts with over the years, and, and those folks had risen to decision-making executive positions, as well as people in, in the, on a federal level. So I knew that we felt like we had to do something. I, I feel like we had to do something. And so I, I, I spoke to the NBA referees. I was on the board at the time for the union. And I spoke with the NBA. Uh, Stu Jackson was uh, the president at the time. David Stern was the commissioner. And 10 days after the attacks, we took two busloads of referees down the New Jersey Turnpike, uh, escorted by troopers. And when we pulled up to the Holland Tunnel, there was nobody on the road back then. I mean, it, everything was isolated, if you remember. And they had garbage trucks in front of um, the, the tunnel as if they were gates. And you would go. Before, and then New York City Police Department picked us up and took us in. And we went down to the 9-11 uh, attack site. And we spent the entire night bringing NBA gear to firefighters and cops and just having conversations with them and tell them, you know, we're concerned about you. We're with you. Just a way to show and, and, and be supportive. And yet what happened was that night, NBA referees became good friends with firefighters and cops that existed as day, and they would take them to games. And, and so 
I thank you for recalling that because it was a special night for us as well. And it was a special thing that happened at the last firehouse that we were at. And um, after I got all the NBA referees back on, on the bus and we were about to leave, I said my last goodbye to them. And, and this house had been hit hard. They had lost a lot of firefighters and they had other firefighters that had came in to, to back up. But some of the guys that were there, um, it almost felt like you were leaving your grandmother's house. You know, they didn't want it to end. It was just this bonding going on. And as I started to go across, I said my last goodbye, I started going across the street. The one ref, one, one guy yelled out, Hey ref, don't forget our Knicks this year. <laughs> and, and, and he said, don't screw them, but he used a lot of different language. <laughs> and it reminded me that what sports does for us, it gives us a distraction. It gives us an ability to laugh. It gives us that kind of like one guy could be about one team or one woman could be about another team and it, it knows rivalries exist that are, that are good guides of friendly bets that go on. All that stuff is healthy in our society and it all comes from sports. And that was a really special uh, uh, experience. I loved reading it and I, I even better hearing it come directly from you. Last question, Bob is how long did it take for you to return to normal life from undercover or have you? Yeah, I, I don't, it chipped a part of my personality away uh, when I was under it, it. It came back after a period of time, but, I, but it changes you. And this is where I'm able to help those that serve, uh, that go on deployment. You know, everybody wants somebody to be that same person. But after you go through a traumatic event, it, it has such an impact on you that you do change. But you can have... What, what I like to refer to as PTSG as well. You can have PTSD, but there's PTSG, which is post-traumatic stress growth. You can have growth from these experiences. You can develop higher levels of resiliency as a result of it. You can have another, another, an understanding at the highest level of empathy for others that are going through it. And you also can look at yourself and say, I got through that. I can get through other things as well. So you can pull on these things. So that's why I called Surviving the Shadows a journey of hope into post-traumatic stress. It's not a journey of doom and, to, and, doom, doom and gloom. It, there's, there's opportunities here. And, and I share with folks, you know, I'm looking before the lights is right behind you, a big sign. And, and light is such an important thing in, in the conversations I have about post-traumatic stress because I say the reason I called it Surviving the Shadows is, is we all have shadows. Every one of us has a shadow, whether you want to admit to it or not, if you look deep inside. But, but never fear. Never be afraid of that shadow. Because in order for a shadow to exist, there has to be light nearby. So it's our responsibility to ourselves and each other to get to that light. And if we remember those things when tough times come, it'll help us through it. It's the Extra Five with Bob Delaney. Bob, I want to talk about your former partner, Bobby Scott. And when you went undercover, you couldn't tell your best friend on the force that you were going undercover. And talk about the difficulty of that. Yeah, it was extremely hard because um, I had developed such a relationship with him. And I knew his wife and his kids. I was single. And um, as I explained earlier, they made me look as though I was resigned from the state police. 
And he kept calling my father's house and wanted to talk to me. And my father finally said to me, and my father was a trooper, uh, he was a lieutenant at the time, said, you better call Bobby uh, because he's too good a cop. And if he keeps pushing, he's going to find something out. Just just talk to him and get it over with. And my father was very prophetic because Bobby went on to be probably the best homicide detective the state police in New Jersey ever had. And uh, when I got on the phone with him, he kept saying to me, he said, um, I know you got some problems. I don't know what they are. And you don't have to tell me. He says, but I want to help you. And this is 1975. He says to me, my wife and I talked about it. We got about $4,500 in savings. We want to give it to you because you're going to need either lawyers. I don't know what your problem is, but you got a problem. And like, I started getting choked up and I had to get him off the phone. I said, no, I'm okay. I'll get back to you and I'll explain this one day, but it's going to be all right. He says, no, you're not all right. I know something's wrong. Something's not right. I know you. I want to give you this money. And if you need me to testify or you need me to do anything to give you a character witness, I'll do it. Because he's thinking I've got a criminal case or I did something wrong. And for a guy to do that, not only give the money, but he would have put himself in jeopardy with his own law enforcement career by getting up on a stand and and doing a character reference for me. And um, it helped me become an undercover guy at a higher level because I said to folks, that was the first time I had a lie and convinced somebody of my lies. And that's what I did for a lot of years afterwards. Bobby was at the raid and that's the first time I saw him close to three years later. And he said to this day, he said, I didn't know whether to punch you or hug you. (laughs) (laughs) You guys arrested over 30 in Project Alpha, but it had many spinoff investigations. So Mm -hmm. how many did that end up, people end up getting arrested from your initial undercover investigation? Yeah, uh, over 100 were investigated. But also, um, if you look back where organized crime was and where it is today, it's really been pretty much decimated in Mm -hmm. in the United States. Uh, There's still a level of it taking place, but not at the level because of guys like Joe Pistone, because of the investigations, because of the uh, RICO statute, the racketeering influence, corrupt organizations statute that allowed us to to take um, uh, organizations and disrupt them. And so um, traditional organized crime is not where it was, but for this generation to truly understand it, it was kind of like the domestic terrorism of today. And that's the reason that law enforcement gave such an attention to it. You know, movies kind of like make mob guys out to be criminals Americans love to hate. And so it kind of like paints this kind of comical picture, but it had an impact in so many ways because the amount of, um, hijackings that were taking place were driving the cost of every product that somebody was buying. Uh, So it had an impact in all of our lives. And then, uh, you know, the violence that was taking place uh, as well. And so um, I'm proud to have been part of that generation that had an impact uh, with, with the taking down of organized crime. And, and I applaud those that are, taking the baton and doing it with domestic and international terrorism. Our law enforcement military are doing amazing jobs, keeping us safe. You had talked about, you had met with Joe 
Pistone, who was Donnie Brasco, after the investigation. Did you guys ever cross paths while you were undercover? And if so, yeah. did you guys know each other were undercover? No, I didn't know. Louis Free knew both of us were undercover. Louis was working the, the surface side of it. And, um, but no, uh, we, we uh, crossed paths, uh, you know, J- Joe came to the trucking company uh, with Sonny Red. And, um, you know, we got, he's writing a report on me. I'm writing a report on him. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but Joe Pistone, just an amazing guy. We're both from Patterson. Joe's a little older than I am but we were both from Patterson, New Jersey. We didn't know each other then. He was a great athlete as well, played at Eastside High School. And um, just an amazing guy for what he did uh, and, and the way he served as an FBI agent. And, and just real admiration for him was extremely helpful for me when I surfaced. Bob, thanks for taking time and being on Before the Lights. I really appreciate you telling your story and your journey. This has been uh, enlightening. An honor to be with you. Thank you, Tom. Folks, if you would, follow me on Instagram at Before the Lights Podcast. And it seems appropriate right now to draw your attention to BeforeTheLightsPod.com slash Bitter Tears. That's BeforeTheLightsPod.com slash Bitter Tears, which is a podcast docuseries in support of Native American rights of the harsh and unfair treatment of the indigenous community. Please check it out. Thank you for listening to Before the Lights. I'm Tommy Canale. And until next time, everybody... A salute, a chin chin.